Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Greed, and I'm your host. It's good to be with you today. It's been a really nice week here in Western North Carolina. It's a little cooler this weekend than it has been during the week. But uh, we went out yesterday, went up to uh, Cherokee National Forest up near Irwin, Tennessee, sort of between Irwin and um, Jonesboro, and kind of in the middle of nowhere, actually. And um, you got to go through places I've never even heard of before. But it was a really nice walk, nice day for a walk. It was beautiful perfectly nice outside so we went out and i don't know maybe um four and a half miles something like that probably is what we did yesterday um just a good day to be out ran into a woman as we were out who um on the way out there we were getting ready to cross over the creek that we had to mostly walk beside we had to cross over it about four different times and and there was this person laying there and i mean didn't move until i got right up next to her scared me to death because i'm thinking oh my god is this woman dead what's going on here but we had a really nice chat with her on the way back because she was waiting for her friends to get back and just had a really nice chat with her about all kinds of things and so it was really pleasant sort of a diversion in the middle of the walk but it was really nice and so anyway we've been out walking a couple of other times this week went um just went out to a park the first time and wandered around for a while and was, that was a nice day and all that kind of stuff so been not too busy a day uh, a week um this week at work I, I took a day off on thursday i only worked a little bit and then took the rest of the day off and really enjoyed it but i've been thinking about that in the context of these lessons actually it's something that that i need to be better about and i need to take more seriously i think and i, and I bet you you do too to be perfectly honest with you because i just don't know anybody who takes this what i'm going to say seriously enough and so um Let's get into the lessons today. What we've got is um, Psalm 19 and uh, is the first lesson. And that psalm is a really powerful call to us to remember the words of the Lord, to, to follow Him, to keep the commandments. And so he's, the psalmist says, um, the law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. The statutes of the Lord are just and rejoice the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear and gives light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, more than much fine gold, sweeter far than honey, than honey in the comb. By them also is your servant enlightened, and in keeping them, there's great reward. And so that's a, a wonderful intro into uh, the Exodus lesson from today, which is Exodus 20, the first 17 verses, which is the giving of the commandments to the people. And so the thing to remember here is, is that, that the claim here is that all the people who had come out of Egypt, 600,000 men, so we don't know how many people in all, um, are there gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and the Lord has announced His presence through uh, fire on the mountain, the cloud that descends, the thunder, and the trumpets. The trumpets would have been the shofar. And so there's this trumpet playing that accompanies the giving of, of the law. And we'll talk more about that in the fall whenever we roll back around into um, the time, the new year, Yom Kippur. And we'll, we'll talk about it at that time about the trumpets and what does that mean, the blowing of the shofar. And so that accompanies the, the giving of the law here, and then God begins to speak, and he speaks to all these people at one time. And it's the claim, essentially, that sets Judaism apart from 
every other religion on earth, everything else like Buddhism or uh, even um, Islam, it was given to one person. And so Confucius is one person. So you get all these religions that were given to one person. All the information was given to one person. Here, though, in Judaism, the claim is that an entire nation heard God speak. So nobody had any doubt that this had happened. They could all confirm to their brothers and sisters, yes, this indeed happened. We all heard this. What you heard was what I heard. And they heard the voice of the Lord, and he must have been speaking their language. And so they have come to believe over time and, and that, that that is, Hebrew is the language of God. It's the language of God himself. And so it's, it's a gift as well as the word of God. The, the language of God was a gift to, the, to these people. And so when, when they hear him speak, they all hear the same thing. It's one note, not multiple different notes that everybody has to put things together. There's a clarity in speech that God has here as he's um, speaking from the mountain. And he begins with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's a statement that goes into covenant making and it goes into the kind of covenant making that kings did with uh, conquered lands, for instance, or with their own people even. And so it's a statement of who the parties are. I'm the Lord your God who brought you, the people, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And because I've done this for you, then you have become my people. And so you follow my rules, and I will be your king. I will be your Lord your God. I will continue to be that. But here are the terms on which we keep this covenant or this treaty, this suzerain. So you shall, it begins with one simple thing. You shall have no other gods before me. Period. End of sentence. Because he's the most important thing in the universe, certainly. But even more so because he's the one who brought him out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That, that's the basis on which this entire covenant arrangement exists. So don't have any other gods before him. Simple, right? Yeah, not as easy to keep. Um, they blow it again and again and again, as we're seeing in the daily lessons right now from Jeremiah. That's exactly what he's accusing them of, is they've got other gods before him, ahead of him. They've got, they're, they're placing these others on a par with him, and nothing compares with him. And then goes on to say, you shall not make a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And again, here what you've got is this idea of creating an image. And that image, again, goes back to creation. What it goes back to is we are the image of God. And so why would we create something else, the likeness of anything that's in heaven above, in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth? So why would we create something like that when we've been created in the image of God? So we're not supposed to create other images for worship. Because everything is beneath him. Everything is, as Solomon says, is below the sun. There's nothing under the sun that we should worship. We should set our eyes above the sun 
into the heavens because everything else is just created stuff like us, but we're the image of God. And so to create another image and bow down and worship it is to create, is to worship something not only less than God, but it's less than us who have been created in the image of God. So it's a powerful statement. And they draw a principle from the end of that, by the way, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What, they, what they're talking about there is the extravagant love of God and how it so greatly surpasses his judgment that his loving kindness, his hesed, his uh, grace is... Um, Somewhere it says steadfast love to thousands, which is at least two thousands because it's not one thousand. So it's got to be at least two thousand. And he only shows judgment to the third and the fourth generation. So so you've got multiples like 500 times as gracious and as loving kindness is four or five hundred times as much as his judgment. So there's a principle that they draw from that. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And, you know, for most of my life, at least when I was growing up, I, I was taught that that was just saying this, the word, right? Um, and, and it's not that. It is that, but it's not that. <laughs> there's more to it than that. It's for the sake of vanity. And so there's so many people. I, I had a business partner once who was Jewish and, uh, didn't practice at all, um, never went to uh, synagogue, never did anything, as far as I could tell, with uh, anything that was remotely religious. Um, but then later, I had another business partner who um, was Christian, but in the same way. And so he asked me one time if my former partner had been a religious Jew or a business Jew. And I, and I realized what he meant by that immediately, because I'd seen it and been around it. And what it meant was, is, is that Every time we got some, we were somewhere and we ran into another Jewish person, he became wildly Jewish and it became a brotherhood. And, and what I ended up having to tell that same guy was he was a business Christian, that he um, only took the name of the Lord, only did his religious stuff in order that he could make more business connections. And so uh, that, that's what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And it was really interesting that the same guy who um, asked me that question became the guy through whom I actually saw the Christian version of this. Are you, is he religious Christian or is he a business Christian? So it, it's I get it. I, 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 he taught me something great there, the Lord did, uh, in that idea. And and it's not to be a thing that we're, we take for vanity. It's not the thing we do to improve our lot in life. That's not the point of taking his name. The point of taking his name is to be his people, to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And so it's got to be everything. It can't just be this other thing we tack on to our lives. It, it can't be something we do it for the sake of vanity or profit. So that's kind of how to get through that. And then remember the Sabbath day. This is the thing that I was telling you about, about taking most of that day off. Keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. Nobody in the land is all he's saying. Nobody. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And I think, you know, we, we as Christians, we're pretty good at the rest of this stuff, right? Honor your father and mother. Your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't covet your neighbor's house. Well, don't bear false witness. Sorry, I left that one out. 
then don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we're decent at most of the rest of those, but as Christians, we don't often think about the nature of the Sabbath and keeping the Sabbath in that way. We do a lot on the Sabbath frequently. I can remember when I was a kid, I was never allowed to go cut the yard, for instance, on Sunday, period, end of sentence. Not allowed to do that. I had other friends who were not allowed to do a whole lot of other stuff. So I think it's something we need to take more seriously because it's one of the ten, and it's set right in the middle, and it's based on God's own activity or lack thereof. And so it's in the nature of God to take that Sabbath. It's something that then, therefore, we do in order that we might become more like Him. We rest from our labors, and so that they were intended to rest one day a week. They were intended to not do any work. And then one year out of seven, they were intended to give the land a Sabbath and not work the land. And then on the Jubilee year, again, don't do anything at all. Let things lie fallow. Take a rest. Don't be about work all the time. Don't be about the business of business all the time. It's an important thing. And and so then what, what, what we do with that day then actually kind of does matter. And and so I think we need to consider very seriously the nature of Sabbath and what it means and what it would mean for us if for, to take a Sabbath. And so I think if we do that thoughtfully, I think that we might show people in a different way what it means to be a Christian. You can pick a day any day, but that day needs to be set aside for him and his worship. And so the rest of these, you know, they're, they're fairly straightforward, I guess, right? But at the same time, they're really not in some ways. The honor your father and mother actually goes with the first bunch of commandments. And I've heard Jewish rabbis explain that very well by saying they are co-creators with God. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for them. And so they're to be held in esteem and honor as well. And then, you know, we think we got a handle on this other stuff, right? Murder and adultery and theft and false witness and all that kind of stuff. But then Jesus in the um, Sermon on the Mount kind of says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder. And if you look on a woman with lust, then you've committed adultery. And so there's this deeper sense of how we keep these commandments that matter. And I don't care how you've done with the rest of these things. You get to the end and you're not supposed to covet anything. And it's like, I'm busted, busted, busted. There's no way I'm ever going to be innocent of not coveting something. So it's nobody comes out of that one innocent. And then we get from there, we, we get the, the, the basic outline of what God wants from us and how he wants us to live. But it's just the basic outline of that, and there's always a deeper meaning of those commandments. And so when when Jews study Scripture, they look at it on multiple different levels. They look at it at the at just the word level, and then, the, then there's another deeper level, and then there's a different level, and then there's a fourth level, which is the mystical level. So there's a there's a they have to go through these these various interpretations. And so when Jesus talks about adultery and murder in the way that he does, he's doing that deeper level stuff. What does it actually mean? I mean, if, if I hate my brother and I won't have anything to do with my brother and, and I just you know walk away from him, then what does that mean? It means they're dead to me. They're no longer a human being. And, and too frequently I hear people in churches even who won't have anything to do with brothers, even if they've repented and confessed and all that kind of stuff. And and it's just from a hardness of heart. And when you harden your heart against a brother or sister, then you've committed murder, Jesus says. And the same with this lustful look thing. Uh, It's a 
it, it's a painful thing to realize how deep these commandments go and what they ask of us. And it comes down to a place where you have to say, Lord, I, I, I can't do this in my natural flesh. I've got to have an extra measure of your Holy Spirit in order to be able to do these things and to walk free of all this stuff. And the other thing that it requires us to do is, is to repent and confess that these things are sin. And the more we confess they are sin, the more sensitive we become to those things. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about when he had the sort of rogue seminary in Nazi Germany that ends up getting shut down, that one of the things that he enforced in his seminarians was that they were they were all men by the way and they were to confess their sins to another and the 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 benefit wasn't hearing the pronouncement that just the pronouncement of absolution and and it wasn't the kind of confession you might do in a roman catholic church where there was penance accompanying that what he, what he said it was for was because he realized in his own life that he was confessing horrible things to God in prayer, but without any sense of how horrible they were. He was just blowing through a list. And so he said that that sitting with a brother uh, or sister, but it, but it should be brother to brother, sister to sister, that, that when you confess your sins to somebody else, he says it, it sort of reveals how horrible they really are in such a way that you have the appropriate recoil from the things that, that you've more or less taken for granted in your own life and you kind of put up with in your own life and then you expect God to have basically the same attitude towards them. And so so that that whole idea of, of contemplating sin and how deep sin really is and what, what murder means and what adultery means and what false witness means uh, against your neighbor, it just it shows us some things about ourselves that, that we we need to realize. And this whole coveting thing shows me that that at some level I don't trust God enough. I don't love the things he's given me enough. And it's the same with honoring your mother and father, frankly. It's a way we show our appreciation to God for the ones who participated in the creation of our own lives. So it's important to remember those things. And it's funny because then Paul speaks about the cross in all this. It's the word <coughs> the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so when we realize the power, the depth, the horror of our own sin, then we begin to see more in the horror and the necessity of the cross. Because it points us to the same reality of, of our sins are so horrible that the only way to make atonement for those sins was through Jesus coming and dying on a cross for us to take the punishment for those sins upon himself that we might have life and life eternal. And so this voluntary submission to the will of God to come and, and show us the way of the cross, which he says is folly to those who are perishing. And then he goes on to say, where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God... The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to those who believe. For Jesus, Jews demand sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so it, why is it a stumbling block to the Jews? Because of the passage in Leviticus that says, Cursed is he who dies on a tree. So how can a cursed man be the Savior of the world? How can a cursed man be the Messiah of God? And the answer is he was cursed for us. And so he receives in his flesh the punishment for not his sin, but for our sin. And we, sinful men and women, are the ones who accused him of sin and put him on the cross. And he went there to die for us. And why is it folly to the Gentiles? Because a dying God on a cross makes no sense at all. So Paul says this, this story doesn't make any sense to anybody. And that's the reason we continue to preach it, because it's the power of God. Because in what looks like folly to men is the wisdom of God revealed. And it is. It's indeed a powerful thing. If you read the sermon that Peter gives uh, on the day of Pentecost after the roaring wind and the tongues of fire and all that stuff, Peter gives a sermon to the Jews who have assembled there. And in the sermon, he, he convicts everybody there of sin. You put the Messiah. I mean, he's God's Messiah. His resurrection proves that. This day, what's happening here right now proves that. And you put him on a cross and crucified your own Messiah. And at the end of that, they respond to him in belief and say, essentially, we believe what you said to be true. What must we do to be saved? Can you hear that? I mean, you could hear exactly that. That, that means, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? God's judgment will surely come upon us for what we've done. Our sin is so bad that we can't even begin to imagine what we would do because there's nothing in Scripture that says this is what you do to atone for the sin of killing your own Messiah. And Peter's response is repent and be baptized. Can you, ima can you imagine if you think, you know, hey, there's this whole sacrificial system that atones for certain kinds of sins, there's, not a, there's no sacrifice specified anywhere in Scripture that says this is what you do if you kill Messiah. And you're telling me all I need to do is repent and be baptized? Are you out of your mind, Peter? The solution can't be that simple, but it is. It's belief. It's have faith in the sacrifice that Jesus has made. It's, it's insane to think that that's honestly the answer. And, and I'm sure that it sounded pretty insane when Peter said it. I'm sure he felt like, wait, did I really just say that? Is that true? Am I sure that's really all it takes is to repent and be baptized? Okay. It, it, but it is. But repentance means more than we think it means. It means turning away permanently from a former way of life. The things that you formerly approved of, you need to now disapprove of. You need to see those things as repugnant and begin to live a different sort of life. You need to think differently and you need to act differently. That's repentance. And then be baptized, which is the symbol and the sign of the new covenant. So... You come into this and you and you come to the gospel lesson now and you've got John two thirteen to twenty two and, and the first thing John tells us is the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, so we are at that Passover time, the time when they had to sacrifice 
a lamb, and they ate of the flesh of that lamb, and then the rest of it they had to burn up and get rid of. And then God went through the land and destroyed the Egyptians by killing all the firstborn of every single family who wasn't partaking in that feast, who's, who hadn't put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the home. There's a safety within that ceremony there that is that has sealed them up for safety and not for destruction. And so he comes to the temple and he sees those who are selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remarked that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. There's a lot going on in that passage right there. He, he comes in and does a most shocking thing because this has all been set up and approved, right? I mean, every single bit of this has been approved by the priests and the religious leaders of the day. They've said, okay, you set up here, you set up here. I mean, it's it's a bazaar that's intentionally set up to take care of the, quote, needs of the pilgrim worshipers who have come to this place because they need to make the right sacrifices. And so you can get the right sacrifice there knowing that it's going to be... Um, have its seal of approval of the priests on it as, okay, that will be acceptable when you bring it to the altar in a way that you couldn't bring your own animals and know that for certain. And so you can pretty well guess that there's a little bit of uh, graft going on here, probably a little kickback going on from the sellers of those animals to the priests. And there's a premium on these animals because, well, they're pure and they're acceptable. If you could buy something pre-certified, go ahead and get it now. There's, you know, hey, we got the thing that, that'll make sure that you get your sins atoned for when you make that sacrifice. Or you can celebrate, you know, the the peace you have with God in that way. Or you can make a thank offering. You, you know, just, hey, you don't even need to bring your offerings anymore. They're a little more expensive here, obviously. But, but hey, just go ahead. And so you can assume there's some back and forth going on there. And then you got to pay the temple tax. you got to pay it in a certain kind of money. And you don't use that as, you know, in normal everyday currency all over the world. You come get your money right here. So you got to change your money. And there, well, there might be a premium for that. There's a little carrying cost on our end for that. So there's a probably kickback going on there. And then he comes out and he drives out the sellers of all those animals with one exception, right? It says the sheeps and the oxen, but then he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Pigeons are different. Pigeons didn't have to be perfect and pure. They just had to be pigeons. Well, not just that. They had to be young pigeons. There's a difference in some ways between young pigeons and older pigeons. And so this sacrifice thing, when you see it that way, begins to make some different sense. I mean, um, one of the great commentators of all time, the Rambam, who is um, Moses Maimonides, talks about those particular things and those particular. Um, actually, this is the Ramban. I got it wrong. Sorry, that's Nachmanides. It's a totally different person. But um, nonetheless, what he said was: is there's two different kinds of uh, birds that can be sacrificed. One is turtle doves, and the other is pigeons, and and they are different from one another. You want to get an, an adult turtle dove, he said, because they will do one thing. They are incredibly faithful to one another. They will not pair with anybody other than their mates. And once they lose their companions, they never get remarried, essentially. 
And so, too, Israel must cleave to their God and never attach themselves to another God. Pigeons, he says, are, are different. They're jealous. And as a result of the jealousy, they part from their previous mates and take on another. They think they're being cheated on all the time, so they continue to <clears throat> to change mates through the times. And that's the reason you have to get a young bird, a young pigeon, and that's because they're deeply attached to the nest. They haven't been kicked out of the nest yet. Pigeons won't leave. Even if you mess with their eggs and stuff, pigeons won't abandon the young like that, and the young won't abandon the older for that reason. So he says that's the reason that you've got to um, only get a young pigeon, and that's the interpretive vision version of, of that passage. So it's the second layer of interpretation, and I just love that. And so um, then you've got Jesus continuing with this, and they ask him for a sign what sign do you show us for doing these things? Well, you authenticate yourself. If you're going to drive them out and you're going to show authority that's greater than that of the priests, you're going to have to give us a sign to show that you're somebody more than that. He says, sure, go ahead. Destroy this temple in three days and I'll raise it up. And then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. And again, I want to give you a little bit more of the Jewish stuff in here. And, and it's interesting that there's an idea in the, with the Rambam, again, it's Moses Maimonides, um, there, there's an idea there in the, about the temple, that whether the temple is a commanded thing to build or not, whether there's going to be a temple even in, in the time to come. And so Maimonides said, yep, there is, it's, it's a requirement, it's something that the, uh, the, priest, that the, that the Jewish people must do is rebuild that thing. But then there's also the idea with the Rambam that says the Messiah is actually going to build the third temple. And he says, in fact, it's the only conclusive proof of the identity of the Messiah is that he will be the one to build the temple. And it's a fascinating idea, especially when Jesus says, if you tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, we know that he's talking about his body here, but, but is he also speaking into this idea that will come later about that, that there will be this whole idea of they're going to, uh, that the Messiah will build that temple, and Jesus throws down the gauntlet there in some ways and, and says, go ahead. Go ahead and tear that down, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And so there's this sense that Jesus has already answered an objection that will come in the future in this. But he's laying claim here, though, to exactly what the disciples know after the resurrection, and that is that he will indeed, did indeed come back to life in three days. So the temple was his body because the, the, it contained the Godhead. It contained the power of God. It also contained the glory of God and the Spirit of God in the temple that was Jesus' body in a way that the temple itself of stones was not even able to accommodate and contain. It's a powerful, powerful statement that he makes that there's a greater righteousness in him, a righteousness that cannot be destroyed one that they didn't build, that God did. And then three days after he makes the final sacrifice for sin, that temple is raised up, restored to life, made anew. And there's again, there's a belief in Judaism that starts with uh, Rashi. It's going to be like 12th or 13th century, a little bit after 
Maimonides, he says that the third temple God himself will build and it'll descend out of the fire from heaven onto its appointed place on earth. And so there's this belief that in those final days, in, in the afterlife, the eternity, then it'll descend out of heaven. And, and in Revelation, we see that very same idea that the new city of God descends out of heaven, but there's no temple. And there is, however, a light. And the lamp for that light is Jesus. And so all things point to him. All these sacrificial systems, everything, all the longings and hopes for resolution and final eternity rest on Jesus. And so indeed, the cross is all we have to proclaim to the world, all we have to offer for the world, but it's the only thing that could possibly be offered, and it must be for us the greatest symbol of God's love that could ever possibly be given. And in that gratitude, we then give our lives to him as he gave his life for ours. Thank you. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green. If you've got any comments or questions, please message me through uh, Facebook.